Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, he's the guy who just realized it's a trap. It's Matt Morgan. So Joey, I had a really weird interaction this weekend. Um, I was at the Goodwill um, and I saw Captain Hook and he was wandering around trying to find something. And I realized he was trying to find another hook um, because he has to shop exclusively at the secondhand shops. I (laughs) no, that's that's I and goodness now I'm starting to laugh at it now no that was like a, a, a subtle dad joke and now it's like the the sneak attack of laughs no oh I'm I'm delighted I, I, and I gotta hand it to you you're really picking up on this one quick <laughs> you gotta second hand it to me that was dastardly delightful I love it Matt uh next he's the guy who set up the trap that Matt fell into it's Dana Roach um, I, I don't know if I can actually make a joke here, given that we seriously had announced today Secret Lair Garbage Pail Kids as a <laughs> actual magic thing. So I am just going to pass the turn to you, Joey. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I also don't know what to do about that. Like, there is a mimeoplasm in one of those sets, which is, I do love me some mimeoplasm, um, but it's just not your style. It's just, it's not for me, <laughs> as the kids not say. Not for you. Good to know. Matt, next time that we all are able to meet up with each other, let's make sure that we give Dana some of those cards or at least have them (laughs) hidden in our deck so that he sees them across the table and and has a fun moment. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the Commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for those new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we'd like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Hey Matt, what are we talking about this week? This week we're going to talk about all the traps, and we're not talking about Ravenous Trap because Joy wouldn't let us do that. Um, but uh, trap <laughs> cards that are kind of anti-synergistic, kind of nonbos with what the deck might otherwise be doing. Yeah, absolutely. We don't want to talk about cards like Ravenous Trap and Archive Trap. We're not talking about the trap card subtype. We are talking about cards that produce negative synergies or that look like they'll help out a deck more than they actually do. We want to dig into just some of our favorites among those. But before we get there, we have to give a huge thank you to the folks who help with the post-production on the podcast. And that is Josh Lee Kwai and the whole team at the Command Zone. They do such a great job bringing the show in this awesome upgraded form. So thank you guys so much. And of course, in addition to that, we want to make sure that we give a huge thank you to our sponsors for the show as well. Yeah, we'd like to thank our sponsors Card Kingdom and TCG Player. Uh, Card Kingdom has one of the best buy lists available and they sell nearly any card you would want for a deck. TCG Player's card prices beat almost anyone's out there and because of their decentralized setup, they're less likely to get hit by mail delays, which is kind of a big deal right now. Simply mm-hmm. go to EDH Rec, find the card you're looking for and click on the appropriate link to support the show and support the site. Yeah, awesome stuff. Thank you so much to our sponsors and before we get to the show we actually have one other announcement that we are nervous and excited to bring everyone because the edh rec podcast now has a patreon page you can help support the edh Recast on patreon you can go to patreon.com slash edh Recast, and you can donate to the show to help us bring even more awesome content to you don't worry about edh rec edh rec itself that ain't going anywhere but if you want to be a part of uh bringing new content from the edh rec cast side bringing uh you know more stuff that you can donate to help with the YouTube content, get some early access to things maybe. There's a couple of perks that we are really excited to offer to the listeners who would like to support the show. 
And like Joey said, there are lots of perks, but we do want to highlight a couple because you folks have been asking for it. Um, we have heard all of your <laughs> all of your cries. So we, and by we, I mean I, and by I, I actually mean not me. It was Joey. We poured <laughs> over all the previous episodes. We compiled all of our previous Challenger stats. So if you are a Patreon at a certain level, you will have access to all of our challenger stats for over the course of the podcast and i know everyone has been asking for this as well there's going to be a discord so if you want to tell dana about all these old old interactions you can pester him <laughs> all you want uh joining the discord uh so make sure everybody come on over to patreon.com slash edh retcast um help keep the lights on here and you get to pester dana whenever you want <laughs> and and that really is the biggest perk that's, right that's, that's why i'm gonna join <laughs> well, and that's just it. Like we have been pondering this, you know, should we start a Patreon for the podcast? We've been thinking on it a while and we want to make sure that it is actually good value that we are providing to the listeners. Um, so, you know, now that we feel like we've got some stuff that will actually be really good incentive, those old challenge stats picks that we don't have to go through all of the episodes of the podcast, for example, uh, to see the different old underplayed cards that Dana has mentioned in every single episode. Uh, you know, that's good value and we want to be able to provide that to you. And once we realized that bothering Dana would be one of the biggest <laughs> Patreon perks of all, we knew that we had to go forward with this. I mean, we might even have to make sure there's a channel just for dad jokes because we know how much I love those and we know how much the listeners love those. Oh, that's that's the best idea I have ever heard. You're we're welcome. doing that. We're absolutely doing that. We're, we're making plans here live on the podcast. <laughs> that's so good. So yeah, once again, that is patreon.com slash EDH and you can help donate and show your support for the show. Thank you so much. And now let's get into our main topic. We are talking about those trap cards and non-bows. And I feel like we should actually take a moment to define those two terms because they are kind of different. A trap card, to me, a card that is kind of a trap, it looks like it's going to help out your deck, and in fact, it might actually be good. But to me, a card that's kind of a trap in your deck is a card that's not as good as it could be if it was a card, a different type of slot. So like it might present something that is like, a, you know, it's decent, but it's not great. And there are other cards that you could be playing that would be way, way, way better. And yeah. I think that that is different from the generally understood definition of what a non-bow would be. Well, and, and there are 20 different legal trap cards in Commander, most from the original Zendikar block. Um, I, so we I said think, we're not talking about those. <laughs> did, I, did I read the notes wrong? I thought that's, that's, all, that's all my prep work was on, the, was on the trap cards. Oh, no. Okay, well, I'll, I'll just improvise. We'll be fine. We'll, be we'll, 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 delete, we'll delete that. No, no, no. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, so, no, what would you define a non-bow to be that might be a little bit different from the generally understood, like, ah, this card's kind of a, a trap in the deck. Like, would you actually separate those as two things the way that I do? What would you define non-bow? Well, I, um, I you know, say... I, I, a, a non-bow is kind of an anti-synergy. It's a card that makes, instead of making other cards work better, it makes them work worse or makes them not work at all. Um, in a negative way, too, you have something like Solemnity that makes, you know, Glacial Chasm not get counters, but that's a positive interaction. We're looking at a negative interaction in this case, where Solemnity would prevent a card that you want to get counters from not getting them. We talk about kind of synergy cards and cards that synergize well together. We're talking about cards that don't do that. We're doing the, the opposite, uh, that maybe pull against where something else is pushing, and so it moves the deck in different directions that you maybe not need to just ignore completely and, and don't play, but need to be at least mindful of what you're doing and when these situations are going to arise in decks. Yeah, I, I think a good definition, maybe even for both, uh, would just be cards that make you stumble a little bit. Um, and in some cases, it's really obvious where like, oh, these cards actively actually work against each other. And in other cases, I think they're really, really subtle. And there are cards that on their face look like they really ought to help. But actually, it just turns out there are plenty of other options you could be doing instead that would help you out way, way more than this one particular card that kind of kind of sold you on something that it didn't turn out to help out nearly as much with. So let's get to some examples of these. We'll just go through a couple of different ones that we um, have noticed in the format or in our own play experience and maybe uh, see what the numbers are showing for some of these cards on the website too, of course, because importantly, I think it is crucial that we don't talk about, you know, the anti-synergies that no one's actually playing. We want to see the ones that we've actually got some experience with. Well, and to start us off with that, let's go into one that I know we've mentioned a couple times on previous episodes, but that card is going to be Helm of the Gods. That is an artifact equipment uh, for only one mana, and it reads, equipped creature gets plus one, plus one for each enchantment you control and has an equipped cost of one. So at first this seems pretty great. You know, you play a whole bunch of enchantments, then you slap Helm of the, um, Helm of the Gods on, 
and you also have a big magical beater, um, but there are little downfalls there. The first being, this doesn't actually trigger Enchantress cards, and this in fact is an artifact, not an enchantment. And so the biggest problem, to me at least, is that it doesn't fuel itself. Uh, it doesn't count itself towards all the artifacts on the battlefield, obviously, and so it's not going to give itself or give the, the equipped creature a boost uh, for it being on the battlefield. It's depending on everything else you have going on. Well, and, and it's not just that um, it denies you one card draw. And, and the reason I mentioned card draw is so many times Enchantress decks are fueled by having one of those Enchantresses in play. So you play an Enchantment spell, draw a card. You're oftentimes running you know, multiple of those effects simultaneously, which allows you to play that efficient enchantment, draw one or two or three cards sometimes, one of which is hopefully an enchantment that you can then play to draw more cards and and you get that like feedback loop going. Helm of the Gods just, just stops that from happening. Um, so that not only is it kind of a redundant effect because there's actual enchantments that do the same thing, it actually can kind of hurt you to draw it a little bit because it keeps you from digging deeper and deeper and, and putting together that alpha strike. Yeah, exactly. It is a card that helps Enchantress decks that also stunts their ability to find more enchantments because frequently in an Enchantress deck, you can cast one enchantment and draw like three cards from cards like Enchantress's Presence and several others uh, just like that. And instead of playing an artifact that has this ability, and man, looking at the numbers, this one shows up in over 4,000 decks, which just seems like, whew, that's a little bit much for a card when you could be playing something like All That Glitters, which has a similar effect and is also an enchantment itself. It is an aura. There might be a danger there of auras falling off, whereas equipments will stick around if the equipped creature goes away. But I would also really prefer to have those enchantments that power each other up based on how many other enchantments you have, because that's another synergy that the, the helm just isn't going to provide you. So it doesn't look like a bad card. It's not necessarily a negative synergy, but it is costing you something to have an artifact in place of an enchantment in that card slot for an Enchantress deck. Well, and, and there's, there's there's actually a second way it does kind of nombo with those decks too. An Enchantress deck very oftentimes is running little or no artifacts. My Enchantress deck has no artifacts in it at all. Mm. So one of the things I can do is run things that then shut off artifacts, like Stony Silence, for example. Sure. Um, so if you are running a couple artifacts like this, then you have to deal with the possibility, assuming you want to run some kind of artifact hate, that you're going to turn off your own artifact. So there's an additional level of Nambo there where if you're choosing to go that route and run something to make artifacts less efficient because you're not playing them, you might hit yourself. Yeah, and I, I don't hate this card completely. If you're playing it, you know, we mentioned Ancestral Mask and All That Glitters. Those are aura cards which do fall off if the if the enchanted creature does die. Whereas Helm of the Gods, if the, you know, if the equipped creature dies, it still gets to stay on the battlefield. And if you're playing a bunch of non-aura enchantments, um, I know I played against a Derevi deck that was playing all sorts of random enchantments and then used Helm of the Gods as kind of a, a, a finisher uh, for whenever you can flash in Derevi. That was a good interaction and I think that it's not a terrible card, but if you're trying to go just as big as you can and synergize well, you have better options at this point because there are so many of these effects that we've already mentioned. Yeah, see, you'll be nice about it, Matt, but I'll be cruel about it. I don't like this card at all. I will be nice. I don't like it at all. I, I, I tend to agree it's not good enough necessarily in addition to causing problems. Up next, we have Stormtide Leviathan in sea monster decks like Eryxmethes. Uh, it is a big sea monster, but Stormtide Leviathan is a very specific card. Um, this creature can't be blocked as long as defender, defending player controls an island, so it has an old island walk ability. All lands are islands in addition to the other types, um, but creatures without flying or island walk can't attack. So you create a problem here where sea monster decks tend to not have much in the way of flying. You kind of turn off all your own creatures except for the Leviathan, and you know, if you're playing against a deck with heavy flyers and angels are a very popular tribe, you know, fairies are a very popular tribe, dragons, you can basically wind up turning off your entire attack step while not hurting your opponent with the scariest creatures in play. This is actually a situation that came up during a game against one of my buddies. Shout out to you, Sean. You know what happened. It was really, really fun because he had like three huge sea creatures in play, including his commander, Eryxmethes, and it was like such a lethal board state. And then he got the Stormtide Leviathan into play and he was like, oh no, I actually can't attack for lethal now. 
what do. And it was a very like, whoa, none of us actually saw, like there are some sea creatures that do have the island walk ability naturally, but there are also a lot that don't. And so this is kind of a, a weird uh, thing that can get in the way of the commander's own goal. And that one, I definitely do count as a non-bow. That right there is definitely a negative synergy that you don't want to be, you don't want to accidentally trip and fall into it. You want to be very aware of, of things like that. And in some cases, it might mean that this sea monster, as cool as it looks, doesn't necessarily necessarily belong in a sea creatures deck as much as it would belong in like a flying matters deck. See, I know some sea creatures that definitely do love this card though. Um, Merfolk Tribal on, on account of they have how many lords that grant island walk to their entire team. Sure. I played yeah. this in my, my Sig River guide deck uh, to great effect because not only did it make sure that my creatures were the only ones that could attack, it just became a very good defensive card. Uh, yes, there are some decks that well, they'll be able to fly over with ease, but if you need a dollar moat, um, this is a pretty good substitute that you you can work around for certain decks. So it, it was nice, and I can see some control decks that maybe build specifically. Um, archetype of Imagination becomes very, very good with this. Sure. Um, so there are certain situations that you can build around, but you need to make sure you're intentional with this. And otherwise, yes, it's going to backfire and it will completely be a non-bow. Yeah, if you've got your Rixmithies in play and your Scourge of Fleets and your uh, Serpent of Yawning Depths and then you've got this one in play, it might be a little bit awkward. It might fight against the very thing that your deck wants to do, even though at first glance, like just looking at it immediately, you're like, oh, this is great for sea creatures. But there is something hidden there that you do want to be a little bit careful of. All right, Matt, what's another non-bow or trap card that sort of comes to mind? So one that I've come across just playing Legacy all those years, counter spells in Cascade style decks, uh, that is definitely something you don't want to be doing. So Cascading is when you get to basically cast cards off the top of your library for free. You have some powerful commanders like Yidris or Maelstrom Wanderer that do all sorts of Cascading shenanigans, um, but they have to make sure that the spell that they're casting off the top of their library costs less than the spell that is causing the Cascade. Um, so if you have counter spells in there, you might cascade into one of those counter spells because it costs less than your Maelstrom Wanderer, for example. Uh, it's not going to get any value off of it because there's nothing good that you want to be countering. So it kind of leads into some really awkward situations where you're trying to accrue so much free value and a counter spell actively stops that from happening. This is something that I've also run into when I was playing um, my Yidris Maelstrom Wielder deck. I definitely wanted to have some counter spells that would help protect the commander. But cascading into those counter spells, especially the cheap, efficient ones like Stubborn Denial that I really, really love using in commander decks that care a whole lot about having a commander, especially one involved in combat, like, oh, it just feels perfect. But no, cascading into that makes this, a, that's really, really awkward. And I can't have cards like that that are very defensive. It, you know, it gets a little bit rough to, to see something like that happen. Well, and a similar thing that can happen is is in the red impulse draw where you get a until the end of turn, you may play the spell from exile. You definitely mm -hmm. don't want to hit, you know, to, to, be, to be running too many of those effects in a deck with too many counter spells because you have the same problem there where you technically can still cast them. But it's only during your turn that really limits the effectiveness of a counter spell when everyone can see it. And you're basically only able to cast it during your own turn as well. Yeah, te telegraphing a counterspell sometimes can be good because people know you have it, but all other times it's like, well, I can't use this for later. So it, it does get into some weird situations. But if you're casting Shardless Agents and all those, it, it's weird because you're incentivized to cast the high CMC counterspells like Spell Swindle, when otherwise you're a little more mindful of when you want to put those in there because, like Joey said, you want the most efficient answers. You want the counterspell, you want the stubborn denials, the day or not the dazes, um, the dispels. But then when you have a Cascade deck, you need to look at what those counterspells you might be running are and make sure your game plan around those. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, just looking through the page for Yidris Maelstrom Wielder right now, it uh, looks like 12% of players are running Swan Song in that deck because it is a really, really efficient uh, counterspell for sure. But that is also still a non-bow if you cast a two mana spell that then cascades into the counterspell. That's a little bit awkward. You don't get the value there from that. So that is definitely something to uh, to watch out for there because that can really make your game plan stumble when it when it maybe didn't need to there. Um, one that's kind of uh, 
this was one that I muddled on for a while, but I, I really do feel like this would count as some type of it, almost a trap strategy. Um, this this feels like it's just not the right direction that this particular deck ought to go. I'm going to be talking about Nikasar. Yes, I pronounce the name weird. They will make fun of me, <laughs> Matt and Dana, endlessly. I, I'm sorry, it's just how I pronounce it. Um, but that is the Grixis commander that deals damage to your opponents whenever they draw cards and, crucially, makes your opponents draw more cards. So... I feel like there's kind of a um, a bad direction happening on most of this commander's... Uh, can you notice that I'm trying to avoid actually saying Nikasar so you guys don't make fun of me? <laughs> on this commander's uh, EDHREC page, because what we see are a lot of Howling Mine effects on Nikasar's page, which force your opponents to draw extra cards during their turn. But I actually kind of feel like these are very, very dangerous to employ in this type of deck because they give your opponents a whole bunch of cards to use on their own time, and also they give these cards to your opponents rather slowly. So it gives your opponents the tools that they need to stop whatever you're about to set up, compared to a different strategy that you could be doing where you cast wheel effects like Reforge the Soul, and you don't use any of the Howling Mine abilities because then you are giving them all in one big chunk and then you're dealing damage all at once and you can chain several wheel spells together instead of a slow trickle. I just feel like the Howling Mine and the slow trickle of damage is never going to work out for Nikasar because your opponents are just going to be too annoyed by him to let him stick around for that long while he slowly whittles life totals away. It should definitely be in big bursts instead of the slower effects. Yeah, chip shot damage probably isn't what you want to be doing with Nekasar into play. Um, I think the commanders that maybe would want to play the Howling Mine effects um, in this archetype, um, Brelin and Shabraz, but that's only because they have access to white, which means they have Smothering Tithe, mm. um, which that would, over time, you get a great deal of mana. I mean, one Howling Mine equals an extra three mana per turn that goes into your bank. That adds up pretty quickly, but with Nekasar not having that, I do agree that the, the one by one damage probably is going to get outweighed by the fact that you're giving opponents cards that they have you know, access to use on their turn. I'd argue that even Brawl and Shabraz isn't going to be able to make use of them the way that you said. I, I think that that really is a dangerous strategy when you could be playing wheels and it will just be so much more effective in all at once. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't even say it, dangerous is the right word, but like it's a genuinely bad strategy, I would argue. I, I, I would dare say you are going to give your opponents answers way more often than you are going to kill them with the, with that damage having been relevant to to their end life totals, um, you know, three trips around the board, you're going to deal a couple points of damage, and you're people that are trying to kill you and kill your commander are going to draw, you know, half a dozen extra cards. That math is just not good when you could just be running another wheel and, and doming everybody for seven or eight, um, and hopefully getting another wheel and another wheel and just ending the game. It, it just seems like a, a strategy that's actually worse than not catching the card at all. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like a, a, a mismatch of setup and payoff mm. because it seems as though the Howling Mine effects, they kind of paint a picture that this is a commander where you put several of these Howling Mine effects or Dictative Crufix effects into play and then you can cast your commander and then slowly make everyone lose life that way. But I think it's actually much more inverted. You'll set up cards that deal damage to your opponents when they draw cards, such as Underworld Dreams, and then you can slam the Nikasar or the uh, wheel effects in to have a whole bunch of those... like. It, the damage comes first, and then you make the draw cards, not you make everyone draw cards and then set up the damage. And that can be a thing that can really cost you a game if you aren't paying very careful attention to how your opponents will use the cards that you give them. But that's probably enough about that particular non-bow question mark. <laughs> Just, I don't know, a dangerous strategic... Interaction. We'll call it an interaction today. Yeah, it's kind of a danger to be aware of for that particular strategy. That's definitely enough about that. Let's talk about another one. So up next, we can look at Earthquake in Kali of the Vast decks. Um, there's a couple different variants on Earthquake. We'll just kind of use Earthquake for as a shorthand for an X damage spell that deals damage to creatures that don't have flying. Um, this looks like a perfect card for a Kalia deck because Kalia has flying and Kalia puts angels and demons and dragons into play all of which almost always have flying as well. So it's a way to wrap the board of most of your opponent's creatures while not touching any of your stuff at all. Uh, the problem here is Kalia's a, kind of a low mana deck in terms of you tend to not have a bunch of mana left over. You're trying to do so many things ranging from, you know, keeping your commander safe to getting cards into your hand so you can play those angels and demons and dragons for free. Um, 
it's just not the kind of thing that you want to be spending your money on in that kind of deck. Excuse me, spending your mana on in that kind of deck. <laughs> right. This is a, a bit of experience that I've had uh, playing Kalia myself, actually. Like, in the positions where you would be able to cast Earthquake for a significant amount of damage, the creatures that you're killing are creatures that you'd be flying over anyway. And that also requires you to have a lot of mana, which means... That, that's just not really Kalia's speed. And also in those positions, I feel like what you could be doing if you really want a one-sided board wipe is play something like a Winds of Abandon, for example. What I want in a board wipe uh, in a Kalia deck is something that helps me catch back up in the game rather than a board wipe like Earthquake, which is really only useful when you're ahead as opposed to one that helps you catch back up when you've fallen behind. See, I, I am not as down on this interaction as you guys are. Uh, One-sided board wipes even if they might be a little mana inefficient, oftentimes are going to be worth it. If you only have your Kali in play or you have a creature or two, even being able to you know, put four mana into the X of an Earthquake, that's going to wipe a decent amount of the board. Um, I think in all the games that we've played, that would probably take care of over half, I would say, what you guys maybe agree. But I think we're kind of underselling the one-sided board wipe. I do agree Winds of Abandon is a good card. But if you're able to spend the same amount of mana and they don't get anything out of it, that is a very powerful interaction I don't think should be undersold. Well, I mean, they do get something out of it when you fail to kill their flying creatures that are in the way sure. of your Kalia. Sure. So that is a problem. But also, Winds of Abandon against someone like Dana, he plays like, what, three basic lands in each of his decks? So that's barely an upside. He doesn't even play that many. I'm up yeah. to five now. <laughs> <laughs> Telling the lies. We, good for you, Dana. It's, that's growth. That's we're, growth. we're proud of you. All right. There are plenty of other anti-synergies that we want to get into. But before we get on to a couple of other examples, what we want to do now is challenge some stats. This is one of our favorite segments on the show where we take a critical look at the data and say, hmm, are these cards seeing as much play as they really deserve? Are these cards seeing too much play? Are they not seeing enough? So that's what we like to do here in Challenge the Stats. Matt, start us off this week. What is your challenge? Well, if you're talking about taking a critical look... Let's head over to twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast, um, <laughs> where you can catch amazing commander games featuring your favorite EDHRecCast hosts. Um, but this challenge comes actually from an interaction that you might have seen a couple weeks ago. Um, this was provided to you by some guy named Dana Roach. Not sure who that <laughs> hack is. Yeah, but he did, he did introduce us to a very good interaction. So Dryad of the Elysian Grove is a new card from Theros Beyond Death. It's two and a green for an enchantment creature nymph. And it says uh, you may play an additional land on each of your turns, which is great. But what we focus on today is lands you control are every basic land type in addition to their other types. Now, there's lots of cards out there that, you know, worry about different basics being on the battlefield, um, but different land types is a pretty important interaction for a certain card that Dana happened to just dumpster all of us with, and that is Valakut the Molten Pinnacle, um, which is a very powerful card that cares about mountains on the battlefield. So Valakut enters the battlefield tapped, and it reads, whenever a mountain enters the battlefield under your control, if you control at least five other mountains, you may have Valakut the Molten Pinnacle deal three damage to any target. Um, this is a extremely powerful interaction. Uh, Dryad of Elysian Grove turns your fabled passages into mountains, which then trigger Valakut. Um, then you can fetch you know, any basic, which also happens to be a mountain, triggering Valakut again. And you can kind of see where I'm going here. This gets out of control extremely quickly. Um, so kudos to Dana for bringing this up. But I do want to point out that the Valakut is only played in about 11% of all Dryad decks playing red, which is insane. That should absolutely be 90 to 100%. Um, 11% is entirely too low for this powerful of a synergy. I have to imagine that there's something involving the price prohibition on some of these because some of those cards are true. a little bit more spendy. But also, I'm just really salty because Dana targeted me first with all of his Valakut <laughs> triggers, which was he the did. correct move, but it doesn't mean I'm happy about it. You got killed by a mountain, Joey. What do you do? I, you did get I got, killed by a mountain. I got killed by a lot of mountains that didn't look like mountains. They had forests on them. <laughs> anyway, Dana, how about your challenge? Um, my challenge is for an artifact from the most recent core set. No, I'm kidding. It's from Ice Age. Okay, great, great. Always the underplayed. <laughs> I, I was really, you had me hoping there for like a, a moment. I'm like, a recent card? 
Uh, no, but. it's Malachite Talisman. So it's a what two in dro- the- <laughs> <laughs> It's in 154 decks, which is which is why you had that reaction, Joey. Yep, it's yep. A- always the underplayed stuff that no one has. <laughs> even the people who design the cards that you challenge every episode haven't heard of these cards, man. It's <laughs> <laughs> so it's a two-drop artifact um, that says for three, and this is not a tap ability. This is an ability you can reuse, which is important. For three mana, you can untap target permanent. Use this ability only when a green spell is successfully cast, only for and only once for each green spell. So this isn't a very good card, except for if you are playing a commander like Sylvala, Heart of the Wilds, or the fairly new Marwyn the Nurturer. Commanders that tap for a large amount of mana and tend to run a lot of creatures in their deck. It's a way to absolutely abuse that tap ability to generate a ridiculous amount of mana. I it's it's this is this is beautiful and weird and perfectly on brand for you, man. Th- thanks, Joey. Appreciate that. That's <laughs> what you have for us I, here. I okay. I, I, help me spell it. I want to take a look at this card in case I ever end up building an elf deck. Uh, M a l a c h i t e. Very bizarre. Very very bizarre indeed. Well done. Keep your eyes up for the man. Okay, so here's here's what I'm doing. I, I've been stalling for time because what I want to do okay. <laughs> is find another underplayed, weird kind of hidden gem card because I had a different challenge planned for this episode, but I got to try and one up Dana. So here's something that I'm going to do. This might be one that we talked about on a previous episode, but I don't know that it's ever been an official challenge. This is a card that I use in some decks, um, especially ones that rely on certain spells to win the game that I really want to get back. This is a green enchantment called Holistic Wisdom. It is one green green for an enchantment that you can pay two generic mana and exile a card in your hand and then return target card from your graveyard to your hand that shares a type with the card that you exiled. So you can exile an enchantment, get back an enchantment, exile a sorcery, get back a sorcery. This is a terrific enchantment if you want to get back one spell that's really going to just pummel your opponents. A personal favorite of mine is Treacherous Terrain in my group hug Kaneos and Tiro deck. That's a spell that deals damage to each of my opponents equal to the number of lands that they have, and I give them a lot of lands in that deck. Even Dana with his Valakuts over there that aren't supposed to be mountains, but but this is a really effective way to get back the stuff that you need and just trade off a random, ah, this removal spell in my hand isn't going to do what I need it to right now. I can get back a game-winning spell multiple, multiple, multiple times. This thing's excellent, and it only shows up in 259 decks. It's old enough that I don't even know what symbol means that this set came from. Dana, have I impressed you with this weird pick? That card is great. I have never Yay. seen it before, and I really like it. Awesome. Ah, oh, I'm happy. I made Senpai proud. Yeah, I, I'm already thinking about putting it in my Enchantress deck now that I see it. I can already picture a bunch of different times I would want to use it. So, well played, that Joey. In, that in particular, the Enchantress applications of this card are, I think, really, really impressive. This can get you back valuable enchantments and even valuable sorceries or instants that green, like there's eternal witness effects that can get back you know, a card mm-hmm. type like an instant or sorcery, but it's a lot harder for green to do. And this is something that can get you back spells from the graveyard in green, which I think is really impressive. And if you are playing an Enchantress deck, this definitely seems like one to to look up if there's a very, very valuable enchantment that you always want to make sure that you can get back. And there are plenty of enchantments that you can toss away to get back very key pieces. Well, well even the lands as well. People, you know, in an Enchantress deck, you have so many permanents in play. Nykthos is very strong. Obviously, Sarah Sanctum is very good. So people tend to try to remove those big lands too. Pitch your basic to bring that Sarah Sanctum or that Nykthos back after someone gets rid of it. Yeah, really cool. All right, now that we've gushed about cards that we don't think are seeing enough play, let's get back to talking about some non-bows and cards that have negative synergies instead of positive ones. Matt, what is a non-bow that you've thought of while we were challenging those stats that people should be aware of so that they don't stumble when they're playing their games? Well, this is one that I I didn't really stumble across so much as it hit me in the face uh, a few Ah. times. Uh, And that card is going to be Days Undoing. So we've talked about wheel decks. We talked about Nikusar um, and being (laughs) terrific. These guys. But so Days Undoing is is indeed a a good and powerful card. Um, It is a wheel for two and a blue. Uh, Each player shuffles their hand and graveyard into into their library, then draws seven cards. But if it's your turn, it ends the turn. Now, that is where it gets kind of sticky. I've played it in my real deck with a Psychosis Crawler in play and then realized, well, that ends the turn clause means that my my Psychosis Crawler triggers go away and they don't actually get to do anything. So if you're playing wheel decks, 
Probably don't play Days Undoing, guys. <laughs> it's not going to do what you want. It, it it can be very effective at refilling people's hands, but you don't get any benefit for it, and that makes it very, very awkward indeed. If you have a way to give this card flash, I think it only ends the turn if you cast it on your turn, so that is definitely something that you can take advantage of there, but correct, the average use case is going to not provide you the things that it looks like it ought to. So the worst thing that's happened with it, and this didn't happen to me, thankfully, um, I saw it happen, but somebody cascaded into it, which means that the original spell that cascaded also went away so oh no uh, it, I, I felt so bad um, because the the person was very very excited for a maelstrom wanderer to to go crazy um, but then they saw days undoing like oh this <laughs> well um, so it was a very awkward moment um, so make sure if you guys are playing days undoing put it in the right decks or at least play around it guys that's a good catch, Matt. Um, he, for the next Nambo here I'm going to bring up um, are two very, very popular cards. Propaganda is in 29,000 decks, and Ghostly Prison is in 32,000 decks. Those two cards that do basically the same thing are very, very popular, and they both say creatures can attack you unless their controller pays two for each creature they control that's attacking you. Um, so that's commonly known as a pillow fort effect. Um, the important note here is it just says you. They don't protect your planeswalkers. And these cards show up very, very heavily in Super Friends decks where they don't actually stop anyone from attacking your planeswalkers. Now, you maybe get away with that because the people across the board from you might not realize it either. Um, but once they hear us now talk about this and realize they can just attack <laughs> freely into your Super Friends deck, they will start doing that. And those are very much a, a non-bow in, in that deck. Yeah, there, there are those that do actually defend Planeswalkers mm -hmm. like Sphere of Safety, but you really have to read them very, very carefully. Um, and, and actually, sort of jumping in on this one, a land that I advocate players use, especially if they are in landfall decks like Lord Windgrace, um, is Glacial Chasm, which is just, oh, it's so good because it prevents all damage that would be dealt to you. This thing is absolutely amazing, but it doesn't prevent the damage that would be dealt to Planeswalkers you control like Lord Windgrace. So that's another thing to be aware of. I still think it's like really, really powerful mm -hmm. and there are plenty of planeswalker or super friends decks where maybe you do still want to keep your own life total sure. protected but knowing that interaction is really really important because sometimes your stuff isn't as defended as it looks like it is yeah well i've made the same mistake with miri weatherlight duelist turns out she does not prevent creatures from attacking the planeswalkers you control she's one of my favorite commanders she makes it hard to attack you but her second ability does indeed read no more than one creature can attack you each combat it doesn't say anything about planeswalkers as much as i've tried to lead joseph astray <laughs> on twitch.tv slash edh retcast um <laughs> but it doesn't actually read that way. Propaganda, sphere of safety, make sure you're reading those specific wordings and see what they're actually protecting because it may not be what you uh, you, you think it's supposed to be. And I didn't know that about Miri, so if you have a Planeswalker in any of our No, it does. It, it, it does say you can't attack Planeswalkers. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm going to keep my <laughs> eye fact. on you over there, Mr. Mischief. All right, I am going to jump in with another one here. This is a card that when I was playing Landfall, um, I really gave it, a good old college try, and it, it just <laughs> never worked out in my favor. This is Animist's Awakening. This is a sorcery for X and a green that lets you reveal the top X cards of your library. You put all land cards from among them onto the battlefield tapped and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. And if you have spell mastery, that being two or more instant or sorcery cards in your graveyard, you untap those lands that you just got. This, the math on it just never felt good, even with tons of lands, even with over 40, even with over 45 lands in my deck, I just still never got a very good hit rate on this because I was always taking so many lands out of my deck with other land searching effects to get landfall triggers. And ultimately it just never felt like this would get me even as much as like an explosive vegetation which is a ramp spell i'm not even all that excited about anymore in almost all cases where i could be playing this particular spell i would rather be playing a genesis wave which is the x and triple green to reveal the top x cards of your library and put any number of permanents from among them that cost x or less onto the battlefield because that gets the creatures from among those top cards that gets the lands that gets the enchantments that gets tons of permanents 
permanents that a landfall deck can pump tons of mana into and not just get more mana, Genesis Wave just feels way more exciting than the Animist's Awakening to me. I've definitely come across that situation too, Joey, where you think it's going to get several lands because, yeah, I'm, I'm playing 45 lands, so about half the cards I see will be lands. Um, you need to take into account the ramp spells that you cast earlier in the game to lead up to that because that does pull lands out of your library. That's exactly the same feeling I've had. Um, so, yeah, Animus Awakening, I've kind of soured on in general, um, even if you play something like Primeval Bounty. Um, where you just get to go out and get all sorts of lands, that's probably going to have a better hit rate than Animus Awakening at this point. Yeah, there's just too many other more consistent options probably out there to to run the risk of uh, of a card that that gets worse and worse and worse as the game goes on, maybe without you realizing it even. Right, whereas the Genesis Wave wouldn't get worse yeah. and worse. By the way, when you said Primeval Bounty, did you mean Boundless Realms? Boundless Realms, that's it. I'm that's... thinking of the... For some, I get those all flip-flopped around but yes congratulations joey you passed the test that was part of matt's yes, test and you, you passed it you good job you passed the magic knowledge test you get to stay on the podcast Congrats. <laughs> thank you i'm glad all right let's move on to another one while i celebrate my victory uh so one that i've come across in my valduck deck um, and i'm sure plenty of other voltron type players have come across too is the protection swords we're talking about swords of kick and face and punch and gut um, as <laughs> Dana likes to put it, um, but Swords of Feast and Famine, for example, which is a, a great equipment, gives uh, plus two, plus two, and the equipped creature gets protection from green and black. Um, but the situation where I've come across that uh, is playing the Sword of War and Peace, which gives protection from red and white, and in Valduk, that deck is mono-red. Um, I've come into some weird situations where I, I equipped the Sword of War and Peace onto Valduk, and I also happen to have two or three red auras on Valduk. Um, so I did it on purpose because I wanted those enchantments in the graveyard. Um, I wanted to play a graveyard deck in, in Valduk, but you need to make sure that the protection you're playing isn't preventing you from executing your game plan. Um, if you're playing Bruce Tarl and Akiri, for example, um, Bruce Tarl, if a creature has protection from red, cannot target with his triggered ability. So there's all sorts of different little protection interactions. You want to make sure that you're not protecting the creature from yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, similarly, Lightning Greaves works the same way where it gives your own creature shroud and I would dare say you don't have to have played Commander very long before you've just e either done it to yourself or witnessed somebody else, like in a Voltron deck that drops a turn two Greaves and drops your Commander on turn three, equips the Greaves, turn four tries to play another piece of equipment and realizes they can't actually equip it because their Commander has Shroud and they've not played any other creatures they can move the Greaves onto. Um, so uh, that doesn't necessarily make Lightning Greaves a, a bad card in those decks, but it absolutely can cause Nambo issues where it, it sets you back turns when you thought it was actually putting you ahead by giving your creature haste. Yeah, very much. And especially with the protection from red example that you mentioned there, Matt, like I've seen equipment decks that have a pro red sword equipped to a creature and then they attack and try to slam the Embercleave into play to make that creature even more deadly powerful double striking awesomeness. And it doesn't, doesn't work because there's protection. Yeah, it does that's, not work. But the swords are excellent. Embercleave, mm -hmm. excellent. It's not like you don't want to be running those cards, but those particular situations, you got to make sure that you're playing around them. All right, Dana, what's another trap synergy or non-bow negative doesn't work out? What's another example that comes to mind? Um, Myriad Landscape and the new Arcane Signet in colorless decks. Uh, Matt mm. recently challenged Myriad Landscape. I think it was episode 117. Um in that it can't fetch fetch wastes. So if you are playing in a colorless deck, Mirror Landscape, if you crack it, doesn't actually do anything at all. Um, similarly, Arcane Signet can't produce colorless mana. And I've seen Arcane Signet pop up in, in Eldrazi lists before where it actually can't tap for any mana at all. So that's those are just interactions I would dare say only happen because someone isn't aware of the rules versus like a conflict that just pops up. That's something where if people know how it works, they probably never run it, but people probably don't quite catch that weird interaction and therefore put those cards in decks where they don't actually do anything. 
Yeah, the the Arcane Signet one in particular, because it says it taps mm-hmm. for one man of any color and your commander's color identity, but it doesn't say one man of any type. And and that means that it can't do the colorless, and that's, yeah, ooh, very, very awkward. And definitely got to make sure that you're aware of those, because those can be uh, very awkward indeed, almost like playing a Farseek in a mono green deck. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll never that is, stop being funny guys that will yes that will forever be just burned into the lexicon of just most like i want to say embarrassing but <laughs> that's based off the person casting it and the person that cast the far seeking mono green drew our attention to their mistake and laughed it off so yes. thankfully yeah. um it was a silly moment um but yes just uh, I, I was going to say something productive to the conversation, but now I'm just thinking of, of sillier times. So. <laughs> All right, fellas, the last non-bow that I personally want to discuss here regards the coin flipping spells, particularly the way that they're worded. And this is something that we visited when we were challenging stats back when Gavin Verhey was a guest on the podcast ages and ages ago. Let's take a look at the card Mana Clash. This is a one mana sorcery that says you and target opponent each flip a coin and then Mana Clash deals one damage to each player whose coin come, whose coin comes up tails and you'll repeat that process until both players come up with a heads so that is an interesting coin flippy card and it sounds like it would be perfect perfect synergy for a commander like okown and zindersplit the partner commanders from battle bond that do a lot of coin flippy stuff so okown is the cyclops berserker that doubles its power whenever a person wins a coin flip but that right there, that's the problem because Okown cares about you winning coin flips. Zindersplit cares about you winning coin flips. And Mana Clash doesn't say that anyone wins a coin flip. It just cares about whether the result is heads or tails. And if you look at the gatherer page for Mana Clash, it actually specifically mentions this card's coin flip has no winner or loser. This card, Mana Clash, shows up in like 42% of Okown and Zindersplit decks, but that is a complete non-bow because it won't actually win or lose any coin flips. You won't get any benefit from your commanders for using this particular card, and that's a huge trap that you want to make sure that you don't fall into. Again, that's that's probably one of those interactions where people just aren't aware that it's a non-bow in the first place. I mean, we're, we're talking about Zindersplit and Okan, who are just such a weird off-the-cuff, sure. bounce-house type of commander anyways. Um, and to be fair, it's a very easy interaction to miss, given the deck is filled with cards that don't see play literally anywhere else but Center, Plit- center Split and Oaken. So I, I understand why mixed among a bunch of coin flip cards that no one has read prior to building this deck, it's very easy to miss that, the, that, that this doesn't quite work. Yeah, very. I think that categorizes a whole lot of the different non-bow effects out there. You got to be mm-hmm. very careful because a lot of these really look like they definitely belong to the strategy where you want to use them. But very, very careful attention will sometimes reveal that these cards have produced a negative synergy or get in the way of other stuff that you could be doing. And you just got to be really, really careful about those things. But there is also like there are those two different types of uh, interactions that we've noticed. Dana, for example, you have mentioned a few times the cards that, you know, there's a rules interaction interaction that isn't necessarily obvious but then we when we were talking about the protection swords like those are still cards that we would probably want to keep in the deck even if they do produce a negative synergy and that's i guess like now that we've talked about a couple of different examples of non-bows and different cards that might you know make your deck stumble like where do you guys personally draw the line how do you evaluate those cards where you're still willing to use them even if they do by accident sometimes produce a negative synergy where's your willingness to continue playing them how do you draw that so So for me, if it's going to be about half the time or more where it's kind of going against what my typical game plan, if I'm having my way does, I'm not going to consider it's got to be more often than not um, a beneficial card on the average board state. If things are, you know, in Hail Mary mode, I might consider some cards like, okay, if everything's going wrong, I just need an emergency button. Do I want to play Oblivion Stone? Uh, something just to kind of reset and, and just catch all. But if it's something that, you know, like I said, with Helm of the Gods, if it's something for a specific commander and because I'm building my deck a specific way, I might put it into a Derevi deck because I have a bunch of non-R enchantments and then I want to flash something in and have something right away to play. But I, I, that is kind of narrow. So I think it just depends on how often that's going to override the typical game plan I want that deck to be playing. Yeah, I I think there's really no way to put a super hard and fast rule in. I I would say for myself, if the the non-bow or anti-synergy exists with the commander, 
Um, mm. and, and that card in question, I'm probably more likely to dodge it just because presumably your commander is going to be in play a lot. Um, versus it just being two random cards in your deck. Um, to give you an example, I am running uh, um, like a rest in peace in a Sphinx, Sphinx tribal deck as a way to deal with graveyards. Um, but I'd have at least one card in the deck that cares about things in the graveyard. I believe Treasure Cruise is in there. So that feels pretty bad to draw if I have rest in peace out because it's, you know, it winds up being an eight mana draw three. But the odds of seeing those two things simultaneously are relatively low, and it's not enough to offset the utility of both cards. Um, so in that case, like, yeah, it's an anti-synergy, but it's not really worth worrying about in that deck. Whereas if I had a dozen cards in the deck, for example, that cared about things in my graveyard or recurred stuff from the graveyard, I would probably be not running Rest in Peace and run something instead that left my graveyard alone. And I think Dana brought up a really good point there, too, is at worst, he turns that treasure cruise into just an expensive draw three. So what's the payoff versus the inconvenience, I guess, is kind of my sure. my question that I kind of rationalized through in, in my head. Is the payoff, you know, at the very worst, is this card going to still have some sort of beneficial interaction with me? You know, you can still cast treasure cruise. Yes, it does get really expensive really quick, um, but it's not uncastable. It's not something that's just actively going to rot. Whereas there are some cards that we've talked about where you're going to cast it and it's actively going to just not do anything that you want to be doing. And it's not going to give you any payoff at all. So just finding out, is the payoff worth the worst case scenario in a card? I like that. Those are both really good ways to measure. And listeners, we would also really love to hear from you about where you draw those lines to. If you detect negative synergies, if they sort of surprise you, if you've stumbled into any of those traps in your own decks, how do you navigate them? How do you get through those Indiana Jones temples that you accidentally find in your own deck that produce negative synergies? And where do you draw that line? Because it's a really fascinating discussion. And I think that there's also a, a good argument to be made that everyone can draw that line at a different comfort level. Um, because I've seen some of these non-bows that even then the cards are still in isolation so powerful that they still ended up completely ruining my day and uh, totally wrecking me across the, the commander's edit. I'm not salty about it at all. But really, at the end of the day, guys, I'm really just so proud of us for making it through this entire episode without even one time saying, you've activated my trap card. You I told us not reference. to, Joey. We were, <laughs> you were th we were threatened. No such thing. Lies. Is that a Pokemon thing? Or Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry See, Potter, that's right? the rea that's the reaction that I expected. That is exactly what I thought. Okay. With that, I think what we really need to do is call this episode to a close. Thank you guys so much for joining me. And hey, if any of our listeners want to get in touch with us, where can they find us all? So you can find me on Twitter at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And if you want to watch any of these interactions that we're talking about here, more than likely, they're going to be on twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast Wednesday evenings. We're going to be streaming. Um, make sure you tune in to catch all the random and quirky interactions that we're somehow making good. Absolutely. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can read my articles on EDH Rec a couple times a month, and you can hear me once or twice a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDH Reccast on both Facebook and on Twitter. And if you have a question, a keen insight to EDH Rec's data that you think that we ought to know about, or maybe a challenge the stats pick that you want to submit, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks again to Josh Lequai and the entire team at the Command Zone for handling all of the post-production work on the podcast. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors, TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. Those can be found using the price info links on EDH Rec or by by visiting cardkingdom.com slash to show your support for the show. And don't forget, you can also now find us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash and you can donate and help support the show. We've got awesome perks there, including access to a Discord channel and a spreadsheet of all of the cast's past Challenge the Stats picks. There's a whole bunch of fun perks there, so make sure that you go to patreon.com slash to show your support for the show. We will be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH Wreck Your Deck, before you wreck your deck. <laughs>